And Father, we pray that You prepare our hearts tonight and speak to us now through the prophet Micah. I love the relevance of Your Word that we can be reading and studying something 27 and a half centuries old and yet be moved and touched and changed by it right now, here tonight. We pray for that. That we would be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Guide us, Lord Jesus, we pray in Your name. Amen. Amen. Micah chapter 1, verse 1, The Word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moreshet in the days of Yotam, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and... Jerusalem. For a kid in 1977, few things were more impressive than those two massive bold words that exploded on to the screen with a blast of soaring music filling up the entire theater, Star Wars. (laughs) I remember vividly sitting there and just being blown away. Just, wow. You know, and then the, and then the icon kind of begins to disappear back into space, and then begins that rolling script, that rolling yellow script that that heads off into the star-speckled blackness, and you just know something good's about to happen. Star Wars, and it began. It is a period of civil war. The book of Micah could have begun the exact same way. It is a period of civil war. When Micah comes on the scene between Samaria and Jerusalem, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, the divided kingdom was pitted against itself. And if you want to read more about this, 2 Chronicles 27, 28, and 29 cover this this time period of these three kings mentioned, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three kings who were ruling in Judah when Micah was called up to be a prophet. Israel was in a mess. The people fighting each other. They were called to be a priestly nation. Instead, they had descended into war and backbiting and strife and idolatry. It was an absolute mess. Micah understood strife. We know that because of the times in which he lived, but also because of his hometown. He's Micah of Moresheth. Moresheth means possession And in Judah, Moresheth was southwest of Jerusalem, and it was a border city of Philistine Gath. Look down to verse uh, 14 of chapter 1. Therefore you will give parting gifts on behalf of Moresheth Gath. We'll explain the parting gifts later. Moresheth Gath, possession of Gath. The possession of Gath. This was a hometown that would have been hard fought to maintain possession of because Gath was right there. The Philistines were right there. In the days of Micah, he grew up with this strife around him. But for all of this civil war, this conflict, God's plan is no sci-fi fantasy. God's plan is marvelous into the historical landscape of a hopelessly divided people. God calls Micah with a message, Micah chapter 5, verse 5, about one who would be their peace. This one will be your peace. We don't know much about Micah. We have his name, we have his hometown. Aside from that, we don't know much else. We, we do know something he knew. 
however, about himself. And that is that if you're taking notes, jot this down, Micah was confident in his calling. He was confident in his calling. If you skip ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 7, Micah says the seer, or the seers, plural, will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. That's pretty brave. That's pretty bold. But it is not cocky or arrogant because when he says, I am filled with justice and courage, it's because I have the Spirit of the Lord. I am filled with power. Oh, not my power. I'm a 32-pound weakling. But the Spirit of the Lord, He fills. And when He fills and He indwells, that's power. And that's justice. And that's courage. And that's all things good. And I remind you of this in our Christian lives, brothers and sisters, we are called to do great things for the Lord. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with, with desiring to do big things in the kingdom. To make the name of Jesus known, just always remember that you're just not the one doing it. You're not the one who has the power or the intelligence or the wisdom or the, the ability to make it happen. It is the power of the Lord within you. And when we recognize the power of the Lord within us, amazing things can happen. Micah is an amazing prophet. Something else we do know about Micah, he's the only Hebrew prophet specifically called to prophesy to both kingdoms simultaneously. Every other Hebrew prophet in Scripture, go and look at each one, are called either to Judah in the south or to Israel in the north. Now their their messages will overlap and there are messages from individual prophets that cover all the people, but they have a specific audience. Micah is told, as we see at the very beginning, to talk about what he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Both. And so he's talking to both kingdoms. According to verse 1, we see the kings there, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. His ministry was in the 8th century B.C. From right around 740 to 700. So Micah had a prophetic ministry running about 40 years, and he came during a great wave of prophets. This time was huge in the history of Israel. Much was going on. The Lord was speaking loudly to both His people in the north and His people in the south. Jonah, Amos, Hosea, they're all there at the same time, up in Israel, prophesying the word of the Lord. And Jonah even on to Nineveh by way of Tarshish. But they're all up in the north. And then of course there's Micah. And another great prophet was residing at this time down in the south, down in Judah. Second thing to note, Micah was a colleague of Isaiah. A colleague of Isaiah. Isaiah you could call the major messianic prophet. Of all the prophets, Isaiah spoke the most about Messiah. Isaiah's book is filled with, with Scripture and teachings and prophecy of Jesus the Messiah. It's, it's amazing. 66 massive chapters filled with Messiah. Well, Micah, you could call the minor messianic prophet. Because of all the minor prophets, Micah is the one who is focused most on 
Messiah. Of course, he just does it in seven chapters instead of 66. And you're going to find as we go through and perhaps be aware that the book of Micah parallels Isaiah in many ways. In fact, a lot of what we find in Micah, we find in Isaiah. Almost word for word at times. You might think in Micah we're doing the Cliff Notes version of Isaiah. And some think it's possible that young Micah was a protege of Isaiah's. That they worked together. That Micah was trained by Isaiah. That he was somewhat of an apprentice. And so here's Micah, this confident colleague of Isaiah. Is he just a copycat? Is so much of what we read in Isaiah we see now in Micah, and you'll see some of these things. Is he just copying down stuff like his boss? The truth is, repetition is a standard teaching tool in the Bible. God uses it often. And another thing that we've seen going verse by verse through the Bible is God will go back and repeat what He's already said. He'll say it slightly differently or give you a different perspective. The four Gospels are a great example of that. You get a story of Jesus followed by a story of Jesus, and then thirdly, there's going to be a story of Jesus and finally a story of Jesus. (laughs) But does it get tiring? No. Is it exhausting? Absolutely not, because you have four records of the life of Christ viewed from four different perspectives. But repeating the things we need to know about God. And so what Micah repeats that we have already studied and seen in Isaiah, good for Micah. (laughs) For Micah, that's funny. There's got to be a pun in there. I don't even know what to do with that one. That's good. But good for him. Good for him. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, Timothy, I raised you up, I trained you, I showed you how to do it. Take my sermons and go preach them. You know, Chuck Smith did the same thing. Interesting, when he uh, began to send out pastors from Calvary Chapel, the one thing he equipped them with, he made sure they, of course, had a Bible, but he also gave them his teachings through the Bible. Recordings. They would get a set of cassette tapes or later on CDs to take with them so that they could study off of that. And they could literally sit at home, listen to a teaching, write down some notes and give the same exact one. didn't matter. It was God's Word. It was His Word to repeat. didn't matter if it was Chuck Smith who said it. And I love that. The passing along, the repetition of God's Word, the teaching of the Word of Truth that doesn't belong to a man but is given to all people. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm going to say this again. Well, Peter, you're getting old. Have you forgotten you've already told us this? No, I know I've told you this. I'm saying it again, and I'm going to say it again later. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he said, This now, beloved, is the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So even if Micah was word for word out of Isaiah, it's worth the study. It's there on purpose. It's not word for word, though there's a lot of parallel. I think, honestly, the parallel there is because of the source more than anything else. The source of Micah and the source of Isaiah 
Peter says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. 1 Peter 1 verse 10. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I've read that verse to you many times. Part of the reason I keep bringing it up is it just tickles me. I really love that verse. Because when I read it for the first time, it blew open the pages of Scripture for me. That was the first time I realized that the Spirit of Christ was speaking to the Hebrew prophets. That the, the, the sayings and the teachings and the prophecies and the messages of Messiah were spoken by Messiah to the Hebrew prophets about Messiah's coming. That's astounding. But what it does is it opens up the whole Bible and we can recognize now this entire book is the message of Messiah. And that Jesus is contained throughout these pages of Scripture. So Micah and Isaiah had the same source, the Spirit of Christ within them, called both men very specifically to share and proclaim the message of Messiah. And so this is the standout difference between Micah and the other so-called minor prophets, is Micah is very focused on the Messiah. He will be the primary uh, issue brought up by this prophet. Isaiah and Micah both together proclaim word for word the great invitation that is given in the coming kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4, both prophets say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. Both prophets specifically encourage the remnant of Israel. That is all God's people who will experience the reign of the Prince of Peace in His glorious return. Both Isaiah and Micah announce the first coming of Messiah. Of course, there are some precious uh, messianic truths and treasures in Micah that you won't get in Isaiah. In fact, it's Micah who first turns our gaze to a little town called Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 2, and if you want to turn over there or you can just listen, we're told after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. This is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, we may come back and look at this on a Sunday morning, but the scribes that are called upon by Herod kind of botch the quote. It's not a biblical contradiction because the Bible is telling us exactly what those scribes said. But if you read what the scribes said and then you look at what Micah actually wrote, there's a slight difference, but it's an important one. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet called Bethlehem too little to be among the clans of Judah. Micah's description of Bethlehem is podunk. The scribes, however, come along in Herod's day and they call Messiah's birthplace by no means least among the clans of Judah. A subtle difference. Why? 
Well, I think the scribes had 700 years to be uncomfortable with the humility of Messiah coming out of the least of the tribes. Or a clan that that shouldn't even be among the tribes. A tiny little place. No, no, our Messiah can't come from there. He's got to come from a place that at least is by by no means least among the clans of Judah. We've got to build this up a little bit. See, they got the right place, Bethlehem. They just got the wrong implication and they try to build up the little town's credentials so the Messiah could come from there. And some people just have a hard time with the humble conditions of Jesus' birth. Other people like the humble conditions and really want to keep him there. You know, because he's not as dangerous when he's in the manger. Well, Micah. Micah is confident in his calling. He's a colleague of Isaiah. And thirdly, Micah communicates the salvation of Messiah. You see, this this ancient word, repeated over and over now for 2,000 words, 2,000 years, is a word that saves. This is a word that saves. Did you know it saved Jeremiah? That the word, the prophecy given to Micah saved Jeremiah just over a century later. They were in Jerusalem and some of the priests and the prophets, they did not like what Jeremiah was saying. They grabbed hold of him. They dragged him in front of the rest of the people. They're calling for his immediate execution as a false prophet. Thankfully, some elders of the people came along. In Jeremiah 26, verse 18, and they said, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and he spoke to all the people of Judah saying thus the Lord of hosts has said Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become ruins and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest so these wise elders quoted from Micah chapter 3 verse 12 to support what Jeremiah was saying and when they said that the priests and the prophets who were false themselves they didn't have a leg to stand on They recognized that, wow, Micah, who we believe was a prophet, said the same thing that Jeremiah is now saying. And God's Word saved Jeremiah's life. It does that, you know. The Word of God saves lives. Micah's name is a leading question. His name is, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Every time Micah would be called by mom or dad as a kid growing up, what he would hear in Hebrew is, Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? And who but the Lord speaks words that literally can save a life. Peter said in John 6.68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. No one else. I don't know anybody. My wife has a lot of good words. But she does not have the words of eternal life unless she's reading Scripture. My friends have good words for me. I get good wisdom and insight from different places. But only the word of the Lord can save eternally. Who is like the Lord? By the way, Micah is quoted another time in the New Testament. Matthew, quoting Micah uh, as the uh, scribes of Herod refer back to the prophet. But Jesus also quotes Micah. Micah says in chapter 7, verse 6, For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Jesus grabs hold of that teaching of Micah, which had a past indictment 
attached to it. And He hands it future fulfillment. Jesus says in Matthew 10.35, For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What Micah prophesied happened was taking place at the time. It was part of the problem. The civil war taking place within Israel and within the families. Jesus comes along and recognizes not only did that happen, but recognizes His very presence on planet Earth is about to cause it to happen. And if you have ever had contention with family members because of your faith in Jesus, it's Jesus' fault. (laughs) You want to blame something, you want to blame someone, blame Jesus because He said, I did it. I came to do this. That might seem odd coming out of the mouth of the Prince of Peace. You might even say, well, how can Micah say in chapter 5, verse 5, this one will be our peace if Jesus Himself said, I came to bring strife and contention. Jesus was, as we've seen before, just recognizing conflict is the response of sinful man. Conflict will happen when a sinner comes face to face with Jesus. Because conflict happens when our own sin nature, as we were talking about earlier, our sin nature goes head to head with the nature of God's Spirit. And so there's conflict until there's surrender. But if surrender hasn't happened, we can expect conflict to be very much a part of what is taking place. Sinful man responds that way. Peace is still the reality that comes with Jesus. So while there may be family conflict, as soon as the person bringing that conflict gives in to Jesus, surrenders to Jesus, it's amazing how peace floods into the household. Because that's what Jesus brings. One last introductory note, and we're going to get on into the first chapter here. Micah gives three messages over these seven chapters. We'll look at one message uh, each of the next three Wednesday nights, Lord willing. Message number one is chapters one and two. Message number two comes in chapters three, four, and five. And then the final message of Micah the prophet is chapters six and seven. And each one of these kind of gives us a a tip-off that we're into a new message because it begins with the word here, Shema in the Hebrew. The Jewish people have that old saying, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Hear, O Israel. So he begins in verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. Let the Lord God be a witness against you from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And remember, he's prophesying to both Samaria and Jerusalem, northern Israel and southern Judah. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah, a high place referring to a high place of idolatry. What is the high place of Judah? And he says, Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. 
I'll pour her stones down into the valley. I will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. All her images I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. First of all, notice back in verse 2. And in verse 3, he uses the word earth. When he makes that comment, Listen, O earth and all it contains. And in verse 3, he will come and tread on the high places of the earth. That word in the Hebrew is Eretz, which is more, uh, more literally translated land. Listen, O land. I'm going to come down and walk, tread on the high places of the land. He's not talking in those instances about the world. He is talking about all the land of Israel which today is technically called in the Hebrew, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. The prophecy, again, is for Samaria. It's for Jerusalem, and it is that the Lord Himself will come and tread on the land, the Eretz. But He talks about melting mountains. And He talks about valleys being split. And we know as we read through these first seven verses that Micah's prophecy was fulfilled figuratively. Assyria crushed Samaria. And in fact, literally Samaria in verse 6 became a heap of ruins in the open country. Literally the rocks were thrown down. So there is literal fulfillment here, but there's also figurative because God didn't stand on the mountains and cause them to melt in those days. Nor did He split wide the valleys. Babylon would later come into Jerusalem and flatten it, burn it to the ground. But I read this, and this always bugged me. Whenever I turned to the Old Testament, the Older Testament I call it now, but whenever I went to the Hebrew Scriptures as a young man, it bugged me to no end that things were said that didn't happen. That things were described in colorful or poetic language, but hadn't actually taken place. And that always bothered me because I was like, well, Lord, how am I to know what's allegorical and metaphorical and word pictures and poetry and what is literal prophecy? How are we to know what's going to actually happen and what is just kind of, you know, a, a big idea? First of all, understand this. The Bible always is clear about its metaphors. And this is another thing we found to be true over and over. If a metaphor is being employed, if an allegory is being used, either the context of the passage or a phrase in the passage itself specifically points it out that this is a parable or this is a sign or this is a symbol and not to be taken literally. My standard rule of thumb for studying the Scriptures is if there's nothing that says that it's to be taken figuratively, you take it literally, as we talked about Sunday with Jonah. Nothing in the book of Jonah says that this is a figurative tale. We know it happened. Jesus said it happened. So you look at context and you look at what is being said. But I've got to ask the question about this. When did the Lord tread on the mountains? When did He make them split or cause them to melt like wax or pour down like water? And the answer is, He didn't. He will. And that's the other thing to know about some of these fantastic verses, fantastic prophecies, this idea of the Lord's coming, the future fulfillment of what Micah is saying right here will be literal, will happen as He says it. 
as the Lord actually comes down in person. Well, how do you know that, Pastor Rick? Well, because it's confirmed in other verses. Isaiah 26, verse 21. Behold, the Lord is about to come out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. The Lord's coming, Isaiah said, long about the same time Micah was saying this. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle. Is that a figure? Is that an allegory? I do not believe so. In fact, Ezekiel describes the flow of water from the temple running right down that valley that will be caused, created when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. Literally. It says... The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so half of the mountains will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. But you really think that's going to happen? The Bible says so. Yes, I do. Jesus said in Matthew 24:30, Then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. We're really going to see that? Yeah. Well, actually, we're going to see it from behind as we come back with it. And he says in Matthew 24:44, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. And you know, John said, Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. My friends, the fulfillment of melting mountains will be just as literally fulfilled as Samaria becoming a heap of ruins in the open country, as it was. Now, verse 7, continuing on. All her idols will be smashed. All her earnings will be burned with fire. All her images I will make desolate. Now note this. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings. And to the earnings of a harlot, they will return. Wages paid to a harlot spoke specifically of temple prostitution. Which was a big part of why the Israelites went after idolatry. Because the pagan nations had this this little plan in place. How do we get people to go to church? Well, we just set up prostitutes in front and say part of your worship is you get with her. And part of your tithe is what you pay her. I mean, that is so sick and twisted, but that's how it was done. And no wonder the idiot males in Israel were like, okay. (laughs) And off they went. And God said, what you paid to the harlot went to the pagan temple. And all of that, those earnings, guess what? It's going to come back on your head. And that's how it works. I think about in the late 80s when the AIDS epidemic hit. And you may recall this, but the PC police made it bigotry to even mention the possibility that AIDS might have a connection to immorality. How can you say that? It's insensitive. It's hurtful. It upsets me. But it's true. It's true. And I'm not saying that every person on the planet who has AIDS, there are people who have contracted AIDS from blood transfusion. Sure. From needles used. But you know how AIDS got into the world in the first place? It was an an autoimmune deficiency disease among monkeys. And it's a disease that is translated by bodily fluids. 
there's got to be some sin in there somewhere for it to get from monkey to man. And then to be passed on like it was. And wasn't it remarkable, as long as I'm talking about this and, and being non-PC anyway, isn't it remarkable that at the end of the 80s, when this hit, all of a sudden protection and abstinence and all these things were talked about by everybody. Where are we now? We are so radically in the opposite direction as far as sexual immorality is concerned in our culture. It's astounding to me. It is absolutely astounding. And AIDS has not gone away. We just don't talk about it in the news anymore because it's, it's old news. My point is this. To say that there's a connection between the disease and immorality is simply to speak the truth. The Bible says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. If you sow, Micah says, to the temple prostitute, you're going to, it's going to come back around to bite you. The wages are going to fall back on your head. And what we hear as Micah enters into this prophecy, we hear heartache. And we hear pain in his heart over Israel and Judah's idolatrous mocking of the Lord. Because, verse 8 of this, I must lament and wail. I, the prophet says, must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Micah is aching over the sickness of their sin that has reached so deep into the heart of Israel it has gone into God's city, Jerusalem. My biggest fear when Cheryl was sick in the hospital was the staph infection in her blood getting into her heart and destroying or messing up her heart. And that's exactly what is taking place here in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah. That the sin, the sickness, the the depravity, the incurable disease is in the very heart of the land. And I say that specifically as Micah said, it was incurable. Please note that sin is an incurable wound. You cannot cure sin. You can't do it. James says in James 1.14, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And right now, Dr. Kent Brantley, 33 years old, and RN Nancy Wrightbull, 59 years old, are, are at uh, Emory University. In Atlanta, Ebola victims. You've probably heard about this. They contracted the Ebola virus in Africa doing work there, volunteer work. They're both Christians. That's why they were there. And they both now have contracted the Ebola virus and are in Atlanta. Guess what? Ebola's incurable. The only way that someone lives through it is if they just happen to survive it. What they're doing in Atlanta right now for Dr. Brantley, and by the way, it seems like, apparently in the news, that he's getting a little better. The only way you get better is you keep flushing the body full of fluids and you give the best possible comfort and care you can, but there's nothing that... It just has to run its course. Sin runs its course. There is no way to cure it. There is no natural remedy for sin. There's some great organizations out there like 
Alcoholics Anonymous. Twelve steps. There are some great methods people come up with to try and get you out of the gutter of the mess of the life that sometimes we make for ourselves. None of it cures the problem. It can help. It can make you a little more comfortable. It can, as it were, uh, send fluids through your body to try and, and keep you hydrated. But it cannot cure. The only cure for sin is a supernatural cure. And so when Micah says this wound is incurable, he's absolutely right. And I think sometimes we forget that, that when we're talking about sin, we're not talking about something trite. We are talking about an incurable disease unto death. That's sin. And when we think about the grace of God through the death of His Son Jesus that washes away that sin, we are talking about an absolutely astounding, eternal, supernatural thing. Something only Jesus can do for us. And we cannot do for ourselves. The incurable wound. By the way, how do you think Kent Brantley's 30-year-old wife Amber is doing right now? If you want to add someone to your prayer list, pray for Kent and his wife Amber. He's 33 years old. He's a kid. His wife is just 30. And she was quoted in the news as saying that he's getting better and we're just asking for prayers and, and... hoping he's going to survive this. How would you feel, ladies, if you were the 30-year-old, and it was your 33-year-old husband who was right now one of two victims of Ebola in the United States? And I point that out simply because, well, we can read the prophet Micah, or Hosea, or Jonah, Joel, or Amos, or any of these guys, we can read them, and we can go, oh yes, that's very interesting. Oh yes, good application, Pastor. Oh yes, I like what I'm hearing. Oh, that's, that's an interesting use of the word. And completely miss the emotional heartache. Don't miss it with Micah. He's heartbroken for his people. He should be. We should be as well. Micah himself felt this emotional horror as he gives this really heavy-duty judgment for his people. Now you might say, well, Rick, I'm seeing this judgment and I read ahead a little bit and it continues through most of chapter 2. I thought this was about Messiah. I thought Micah was the minor messianic prophet. He is. But remember, Messiah is the only cure for the disease of sin and death. And before the cure can come, the disease has to be recognized for what it is. got to know what we're fighting here, gang. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6 says, The sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. But then the Lord says in Isaiah 1, 18, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Verse 10 Micah cries out, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Micah right there is recalling David's agony. King David, when he was agonizing over the death of Saul and Jonathan, listen to what he said, 2 Samuel 1.20, Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. That's what Micah is saying. Don't give fodder to the enemy. Don't tell the Philistines 
about what's happening here. Keep it quiet there because we don't want to give the enemies of God an opportunity to rejoice over the mess that we're making. Micah's agony, Micah's agony, I would say, is worse than David's because though David agonized over Saul and Jonathan, Micah agonized over the entire people of Israel. And he calls on all to feel for Israel to mourn. Do you feel this stuff? And I had to be stopped in my tracks this afternoon and noon and think, do I feel this? Do I as a pastor feel the agony of sin? Even just dealt with right here in our fellowship. Do we hurt for each other? Or do we go, I knew he was going to end up there going down that road. Lord, thank you that I'm not like him. Do we ache when our brothers and sisters ache? And are we in horror over the sin in the world around us rather than judging the world around us, having hearts broken for the lostness? Micah now uses a series of puns to sharpen his point. Not dumb puns like mine, but puns that actually have some substance to them. He says, At bet le afra, roll yourself in the dust. Bet le afra means house of dust. In the house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. So in other words, don't go tell the enemies that they can rejoice. You just respond physically. You roll in the dust that we have made for ourselves. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. Shafir is a Hebrew word that sounds like the word for beautiful. So go your way, inhabitant of beauty, in shameful nakedness. Everything stripped away. The beauty becomes shame. He says, the inhabitant of Zeanan does not escape. Zeanan means to come out, to exit. And so he's saying, this inhabitant can't exit. You're stuck. You're under attack. The lamentation of Bet Azel, he will take from you its support. Bet Azel, and, and you know, if we were all Jews, it would be a lot easier to understand this if we knew the Hebrew, but Bet Azel means house of nearness or the nearby town, or or your neighbors, you could say it that way, the lamentation of your neighbors is He will take from you its support. Your neighbors are not going to be there to help you because they're wiped out. Okay? And then He says, for the inhabitant of Marot, which is bitterness, maybe you remember the the stop that Israel made at the place of Mara, bitterness, Marot means bitterness. The inhabitant of bitterness becomes weak, waiting for good because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. And by the way, that's a good word. The inhabitant of bitterness becomes weak, waiting for good. Bitterness will only weaken your faith. Bitterness will only take away, even if you're waiting for something good to happen in a relationship that's so bad and so ugly and so bitter, if that bitterness continues to seethe in you, you will get weaker and weaker in your faith. Got to let the bitterness go. Got to hand it to the Lord. Verse 11, Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the daughter of Sin to the daughter of Zion because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Lachish was uh, on the southwest, southwest of Jerusalem. It's, It's there today, Lachish. Lachish was a stronghold in Judah. 
It was a battlement. It was a place where you would run to mount up, to harness up the horses so that you could go fight a war. But here he's saying, harness up the chariot to the team of horses. And what he's indicating is to run away. You're not harnessing anything to fight, but to run, to flee for your life. By the way, Lachish was apparently an early influence of idolatry for the people of Jerusalem. Because it says she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, Zion being Jerusalem, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Verse 14. Therefore, you will give parting gifts on behalf of Morashet, Goth. The houses of Akzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession. The one is Sennacherib of Assyria. O inhabitant of Merashah, the glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Okay, so verse 14, what does he mean parting gifts? It ain't the price is right. It's, <laughs> it's the price of judgment. There will be parting gifts because of judgment. I remind you again, Morasheth means possession. And so he says, therefore you will give parting gifts on behalf of Morasheth Gath on behalf of the possession of Gath. So as Assyria is wiping out Israel, the Philistines are battling Judah and are taking over Morasheth. It becomes the possession of Gath. And what they possessed will now be passed along as a possession to others. The parting gifts. It's an interesting translation. But the Hebrew seems to indicate these parting gifts are almost like like wedding presents given from the bride's family to the groom as he takes the bride away. But this is not a celebration. These parting gifts are going to the invading armies. Adullam, he says, note this, verse 15, the glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Adullam means justice of the people. Justice of the people. But you may remember Adullam as a place rather than a description. The cave of Adullam, one of the caves in which David hid when he was fleeing from Saul. Ran to the caves of Adullam. And just as David hid from Saul in his day, so now the glory of Israel will enter Adullam. The glory of Israel will hide. There's a couple of ways to look at this and just think about this. It's interesting. Ezekiel describes God's glory leaving, departing the temple. He describes coming across the threshold and out the east gate and departing. And here we have Micah talking about, well, the glory of Israel entering Adullam as though hiding out in a cave. What's the glory of Israel? Maybe a better question is who? Who is the glory of Israel? Yeah, it's the Lord. 1 Samuel 15.29 says, The glory of Israel will not lie or change His mind, for He is not a man that He should change His mind. The implication is God's glory is now going to depart and, and enter into judgment. For read that way, Adullam means justice of the people. The glory of Israel will enter into justice of the people. And so there is judgment taking place as the Lord departs and enters into this place, this Adullam. And verse 16, Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle 
for they will go from you into exile. Your children are going to be taken from you. Shave your heads. And in Israel in the day, shaving the head was a sign of intense mourning. It wasn't caused by the stress of children as may be the case with some of us today. (laughs) Shaving the head was mourning. Your children are going to be taken into captivity. Shave your heads in sorrow and in mourning. Job chapter 1 verse 20 tells us Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. That's a beautiful picture because mourning can engage a person in worship. Worship isn't all about dancing, and jumping and clapping hands and shouting hallelujah. Sometimes worship comes from the place of deep sorrow and mourning because the only person to whom you can turn is the Lord God. Amos chapter 8 verse 10 The Lord says, I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head and I will make it a time of mourning for an only son and the end of it will be like a bitter day. Chapter 2, continuing in the message, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their heads. When morning comes, they do it. For it is in the power of their hands. This is shocking. Gang, this is sin, premeditated through the night, and then brought right out into the light the next morning. It's not sin that's carried about in the darkness or happening in the nighttime. This is sin in the broad, brazen light of day. Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed to the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Problem is, what's going on, what Micah says here, when morning comes, they do it. What he's saying is not that their sin is brought out for exposure to be confessed and cleaned up, but their sin is brazen. You planned this all night long, and now in the light of day, you're celebrating your sin. Similar to what Hosea said in chapter 7, verse 6, their anger smolders at night, and in the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. Everything comes alive in the morning. And we're seeing this in our culture right now. We're seeing things that are practiced in the light of day that 20 or 30 years ago were going on, but in the darkness of night. Things that were happening that no one knew about, we knew. We all knew it was going on, but it was like over there. It was like that side of town. You know, it was that shady place. And you just, if you were, you know, uh, for the most part, a a church-going person, you just didn't go to those places. But now in our culture and around the world, it's in broad daylight. It's gay pride parades in Jerusalem. And you see things like this and say, wait a minute, what, what is happening? The flaunting of sin. My friends, the more familiar we are with sin in the dark of night, the easier it is to parade it in the morning light. Verse 2. They covet fields, then seize them, and houses, and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Well, Ahab and Jezebel had done that. 1 Kings 21 tells the story. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. Naboth said, No. Ahab was bummed, weeping like a baby on his couch, and Jezebel came along and goes, I know how to get it. I got it covered. 
falsely accuses Naboth, he's killed, and Ahab gets the vineyard. God doesn't forget these things. And He points it out now through the prophet Micah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 3, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks. Which is a picture of slavery. And you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time, or literally a harmful, a troubled time. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt or a proverb and utter a bitter lamentation and say, We are completely destroyed! He exchanges the portion of my people, how He removes it from me. To the apostate, He apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. He says, all of the allotments of land, all of your inheritance, guess what Israel? It's going away. There's not going to be anyone like Joshua to stand there and apportion the different parts of the land. It's gone. You're losing your inheritance. And the picture is, in the same way that Naboth lost his inheritance by the sin of of Ahab and Jezebel, now all Israel is going to lose their inheritance by their own sin. By what they have done. Do not speak out, verse 6. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. What he's saying here, and this is interesting wording. The Hebrew for speak out is nataf. And nataf means to drip. Nataf? 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 Like water. Drops of water. He says, Kyle and Delich translate it this way. Drip not, they drip. But if they drip not this, their shame will not depart. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 2, Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. Moses says the word is like drops of water. And if it's first received like dew in the morning, it causes things to be green and to grow and to flourish and to be beautiful. But if it's rejected, later on it's going to drop... It's going to keep dropping. The word is now dropping through Micah. But as the word flows, as the word drops from Micah, it's not creating this this dewy green beauty. It's annoying. ah, I'm being dropped on here. And so the people respond saying, Stop dropping! Stop the drips! I don't want to hear this anymore. And God says, If this water doesn't drop down on you, are you with me? this water doesn't drop on you, your shame's never going to get washed away. The reproach will remain. The words don't drip down. The sin, the disease remains incurable. About three three or so days in the hospital with Cheryl was just waiting. It was infuriating for me sitting there. She was in agony and I'm just angry because for three days as I I sat there watching my wife fight for her life, what was going on is we were waiting for the blood cultures to come back. I'm like, it's 2014, don't we have some medicine that moves a little faster? Like now? But they had to because they didn't know what they were fighting. They had no idea. 
They knew that there was infection in her blood. What is it? I don't know. If you don't know what it is, how do you fight it? What antibiotics do you employ in the battle when you don't even know what the enemy looks like? And so we had to wait for these blood cultures to ultimately come back. In the same way, God says if they do not speak out, if my prophets, he's saying, do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. If you don't address sin directly, how do you deal with it? Mankind's way is to hide sin. We'll just set it aside. We'll just ignore the fact that we're running 104 fever. We'll just, you know, when the blood pressure drops to 50 over 30, we'll just say, I just need a nap. If you don't know what you're fighting, how do you fight it? Gang, there is curative power in confession. When the word comes and we are pierced to the heart and we confess what it is that we are struggling with to a brother, to a sister, and to the Lord, there is cure that comes with it. James says, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So the prophets are speaking, and the people say don't speak, and God says they have to speak. Because the Word's got to draw out confession. If that doesn't happen, you stay sick. Verse 7. It is being said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these His doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Now, what's happening and what he's addressing here is the false prophets were saying things, things like, God wouldn't do this. God's not impatient with us. You're hearing this Micah and this Isaiah go off on you. Don't worry about it. God is love. And He is, by the way. They were saying, God is, is patient. He is. Well, God wouldn't in His love and His patience allow Israel to be overthrown. Yes, He would. Because of His love and patience, He's sending Micah to you. He's sending Isaiah. He's giving you warning. But you better believe He's going to allow it to be overthrown. The people are abusing the mercy and the grace and the long-suffering of God. And the false prophets are coming along saying, eh, not going to happen. I call this trampling grace. And we do it when we take the grace of God and we apply it to our lives in such a way that we say, I'm covered by grace, so what does it matter if I sin? God wouldn't do that. I was at church at least six months ago. I remember the last time I prayed was Christmas 08, I think it was. It was good. You know, we're good. Me and God are good. And it's trampling grace. In fact, it's not really receiving grace at all. Jude said in verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who, listen, turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Christian who says, because I am covered with grace, I can do what I want and it's okay. And it's not. Because God is at the same time full of grace and full of truth. He is both merciful and righteous. 
And His righteousness must be satisfied, which is where His grace comes in. Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous requirements of God on the cross at Calvary. That's what bought me my freedom. And yet, Peter comes along, 1 Peter 2.16, and says, Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use your freedom, I love this, as a bond slave of God. Man, when I say I'm free in Christ, you know what I'm saying? I'm free to be enslaved to the Lord Jesus. Well, it doesn't sound like freedom. Oh, it is. It is a greater freedom than we could possibly experience outside of Christ. To receive grace is to receive Jesus not only as Savior, but as Lord and Master. And obedience is a right response to grace. Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly. I don't deserve what He's given me. And because I don't deserve His grace, man, He can have all of me. And my obedience. Verse 8, He goes on, Recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by from those returned from war. What's that about? It's thought that it's a picture of someone coming back with the spoils of war and the robes of victory and you're tearing it off. You're ripping them off in their time of celebration. The women of my people, verse 9, you evict. Each one from her pleasant house. From her children, you take my splendor forever. And he's referring to pictures now of all the injustice and and the sin going on inside of Israel and Judah. Verse 10, Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. Because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. And so Micah is judging, the Lord is judging through the prophet, that this land that was supposed to be about rest and peace has no Shabbat, and has no shalom. There is neither rest nor peace going on because where sin is, rebellion reigns. To rest in sin or to try and find peace in self-determination is among the greatest lies of the enemy. It's someone saying, I would have peace if those Christians would just stop telling me about Jesus. No, you won't. You'll never have peace. And saying, what I really need this Sunday morning and every Sunday morning following is to sleep in and get a little rest. You're not going to get rest. Because rest and peace only come in the Lord. God gave the people the land for a place of rest. The land to experience the peace of God. And they turned it into a sin-soaked, idolatrous place of rebellion. And they had no rest and they had no peace. They were just at civil war. In verse 11, he says, If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a spokesman to this people. In other words, the only kind of prophet the people wanted was the one who told them where they could get more beer. I remember as a high school kid, there were guys we knew. My basketball team knew guys who would hang out at certain liquor stores on Friday nights so that the underage teens could go to them and give them a little money to go buy them a case of beer. 
And these 21, 22-year-old idiots, probably doing time now, would go in and buy the beer and, and bring it out. And the high school students thought, these guys were so cool. And Mike is saying, these are the kinds of prophets you want to listen to. Those who say, hey, I can give you wine and liquor and good times and celebration and joy, and that's all going on right now. I've got that for you. And he says, that's the kind of person, that's the kind of prophet that the Israelites are listening to right now, the one who stands up and says, party at Prophet Nimrod's house tonight. (laughs) Now, at the close of the first message, Micah suddenly turns from judgment. I mean, on a dime, he turns now to consolation. And it's marvelous. Verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Note this. Micah does it. Isaiah does it. But Micah specifically refers to the remnant five times across these seven chapters. Five times across these three messages. And he refers to the remnant in every single message. And when you hear the prophets of Israel talk about the remnant of Israel, they are always talking about the people who will be in the kingdom. The remnant of Israel are those Jews who will enter into the kingdom that Christ is bringing. That's the remnant. It's not talking about a people before them, but always a people to come. Paul says in Romans 9, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, quote, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. The remnant of Israel will enter into that kingdom. Verse 12 going on, he says, I will put them together like sheep in the fold. Like a flock in the midst of its pasture, they will be noisy with men. I love that. Can you imagine? All Israel gathered in Jerusalem, Jesus standing on Mount Zion. What do the ears of Jesus hear? What does it sound like to have all of the remnant gathered around looking up at Messiah saved at the front end of the Millennial Kingdom? I think it's going to sound like a huge glorious flock of sheep. I think that's what he's going to hear. Bleeding and eating. You know, bawling and gnawing as they're in fresh pasture and they will be noisy because there's so many of them and because they have nothing to be afraid of. These are not sheep frightened and in hiding. These are sheep that are just blah, 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 having the time of their lives. And Jesus said, you know, I'm the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and Jesus said, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, speaking of you and I. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd, and I just know. Look for it. I could be wrong about this, but look for it. In the Millennial Kingdom, at the very beginning, when all the remnant of Israel are there, and you will be there, look at Jesus' face. And as all the remnant of the Jews are talking and chatting it up, and, and just and all there's that buzz of excitement, look at Jesus' face. I wonder if He won't just be going, there's my sheep. Just a big smile, hearing 
His noisy sheep who are safe and happy to be home. Verse 13. I love this. The breaker goes up before them. And they break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. And he's talking about the gate into the millennial kingdom. He's talking about entrance into the promise. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. The breaker. The word in Hebrew is parats, and it can be both a description and a title. That this is the breaker. The breaker is the king. The king is Messiah. Messiah is Jesus Christ. He is the breaker. And I love that the same word is used for the people. The breaker goes before them, and they break out. The parats goes first, and then the people parats. Okay? The Christ comes first, and then the Christians. We share His name. He's the breaker, and we break out. Not, you know, like in the face, but we, we, we break out into the kingdom. Are you in need of a breakthrough? Jesus is the breaker. Do you have someone you've been praying for and just, Lord, make a difference in their life. Change them. Do something. Start praying for the breaker. Because Jesus Christ is the breaker. The King who goes first. Spurgeon said, Inasmuch as Jesus has gone before us, things remain not as they would have been had He never passed that way. Jesus goes first and changes everything. He goes on and says, There are lions, but their teeth are broken. There are serpents, but their fangs are extracted. There are rivers, but they are bridged or fordable. There are flames, but we wear that matchless garment which renders us invulnerable to fire. The sword that has been forged against us is already blunted. The instruments of war which the enemy is preparing have already lost their point. And Spurgeon poetically says, Proclaim aloud the Savior's fame who bears the breaker's wondrous name. Sweet name, and it becomes him well, who breaks down earth and sin, death and hell. Jesus is the breaker. Messiah. And Micah is now rushing forward in messianic prophecy. Because the point of it all is Micah's name. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Tell me honestly. Who in your life can break through to someone who doesn't have salvation today? I'll tell you who. Jesus Christ. And so we cry out to Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are so good. Your Word so powerful. We thank You for sending prophet upon prophet. We thank You that in the earlier times that You spoke through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. We are doubly thankful to You, Lord Jesus, that You speak to us directly today. That, Father, You give us Your voice through Your Son. And, Father, I just I want to specifically pray right now because I know this is on the hearts of several of my brothers and sisters. Especially in the last few days. Many different ones who are, who are crying out to You on behalf of a friend or a brother or a mother, or a sister, crying out for salvation as we sense the nearness of the last day. Father, be the breaker. 
we are praying for supernatural breakthrough. Supernatural cure for the disease of sin. Supernatural power, Lord Jesus, to be poured out on Your people to deliver the Gospel. And Lord Jesus, as You went first, as You are the breaker, may we have a breakthrough here as a fellowship. And may Your church in this world break through the resistance of the enemy that salvation will rise like the dawn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.